one thing about Hamlet is, in a sense, for a native English speaker, it's never anyone's first reading. Um, so much of Hamlet, I mean, as I say, the joke about Hamlet is that uh, it's almost like reading Ben Franklin. It's just full of familiar quotations, familiar uh, pieces of advice, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night, the day that thou canst not then be false to any other man. Um, there's some soliloquy about um, existing or not existing. Um, and uh, it's a play that is so well known by the culture at large, um, so widely disseminated, that just knowing the English language is knowing things about Hamlet, knowing things from Hamlet, um, that Shakespeare, when he wrote Hamlet, didn't expect you to know. I'm going to give an example of that in a minute. But one of the difficulties about Hamlet, but also one of the things that makes it worth thinking really hard about, is how well known the play is even to complete novices. That is, how hard it is to try to see or to read Hamlet the way it would have been seen or read by its first day's audience or by the actors when they were given the parts. Hamlet is, there probably was an earlier version of Hamlet, which is now lost, um, either written by Shakespeare or written by a friend of his that kind of told the same story that Hamlet does. Um, but the way Shakespeare tells a story is a radically new thing. It's a shockingly new thing, what Shakespeare does in Hamlet. And Hamlet, in a sense, the novelty of what Hamlet does has become a victim of its own success. Hamlet is now so much the standard, most central play in Shakespeare's body of work, and maybe the single most central work of literature in English literature, that it's hard to see how shocking and strange the play is. But it is shocking and strange, and one of the things that we're going to try to do um, is see the extent to, the extent to which it's shocking and strange. Um, I want to give a general um, background to it. If this were in the old days, when I was an undergraduate, we did all of Shakespeare's plays in the first six weeks of the term um, and talked about them at very, very deep levels. Um, we then moved on to Spencer, Milton, Marlowe, and various other people. And by the end of the semester, we'd really read something. Uh, but in this third millennium, um, you don't get to do quite as much as we once did. <laughs> you guys, I can't believe you're giving me that serious look. Um, but if we, if we were doing more plays in this class, that is if this were actually a year-long or a two-year-long class or graduate seminar, um, we would be looking at previous versions of the kind of play that Hamlet is um, in Shakespeare, plays that are known as by the genre of revenge plays. Um, Shakespeare, when he wrote revenge plays, um, he made them very, very weird. But there is a genre called the genre of the revenge play. And essentially, the way a revenge play works is that the hero, often called the revenger, um, has been wronged in some really deep and terrible way. Um, often the wrong hasn't been done explicitly to him or her. Yes, there are many female revengers, 
Um, often the wrong hasn't been done explicitly to him or her, but to some family member. Um, probably the greatest revenge play, eh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm quite prepared to say that it's the greatest, but one of the greatest revenge plays before Hamlet is a play by Shakespeare's friend John Kidd. He was also a um, roommate of Christopher Marlowe called The Spanish Tragedy. If any of you are taking modernism and have read The Wasteland, you'll know that Eliot was very fond of The Spanish Tragedy and actually quotes from it in The Wasteland. Um, in The Spanish Tragedy, the story put very, very briefly is that the evil king and his evil sons kill a young man named Horatio. And his father, Hieronimo, um, takes revenge over the murder of his son by pretending madness and by pretending to be friends with the evil king and his sons. Um, so there's a way that what Shakespeare is doing in Hamlet is he's reversing that situation. He's making the son take revenge over the murder of his father rather than the father take revenge over the murder of his son. It's a little bit of a harder call um, to have a son take revenge over the death of his father because the order of deaths is more natural, fathers dying before sons. Um, and revenge is supposed to be about unnatural situations. So the Spanish tragedy is a little bit easier. The son dies before the father, and the father takes revenge over this shocking reversal of the natural order of things. Claudius is going to allude to the natural order of things, um, and that's why I mention it. Um, the son, as I say in the Spanish tragedy, is named Horatio. The father who pretends that he is, doesn't know what the king has done and is kind of on his side, is essentially pretending to be a Polonius-type figure, um, a figure who seems to be offering wise counsel to the king. Um, but unlike Polonius, he ends up um, killing the king's sons. Um, and it's done, if you know the original Star Trek, um, it's done in a way that Star Trek picks up on, which is they put on a play, and the two evil sons are actors in the play, um, and Horatio's beloved, um, who also pretends she doesn't know that they've murdered Horatio, um, is an actress in the play. Um, and they do a little scene where the two young men um, are supposed to be killed on stage, and they play the part really well because they, in fact, are killed on stage. Um, and their father says, boy, they do that well. Aren't my sons good actors? Um, he's next, of course. Um, and so both the actors and the prime member of the audience are killed, and that's, that's the mode of revenge in the Spanish tragedy. I know it's a spoiler, but it's still worth reading. Um, the, um, Shakespeare takes all these elements... Um, and turns them into something really, really strange and unusual. He takes the play within the play element. He takes Horatio. He takes the Polonius-like character. Um, but most importantly, he takes the idea of revenge 
and does something very, very odd with it. Um, there are previous revenge plays in Shakespeare. Uh, Richard III would count as a revenge play. Um, Romeo and Juliet is about revenge. Um, it's about um, revenge over the death of Mercutio, over the death of Tybalt, um, and um, feuds that will go back and forth in a revenge culture. The important thing to see about how revenge works is that it makes an aspect of life represent something that has happened in the past. It makes the present represent the past. The re in revenge, um, and here's an interesting fact about both English and German, uh, both English and the German language. The re in revenge is the re of repetition. You are doing again when you take revenge. You are doing again what has already been done. But you're doing it back to someone or to their family. So in English, the word re or the morpheme re and the word again are very, very similar to each other because they mean both repetition and they mean going against someone. The word again and the word against actually come from the same root. It means to turn something around 180 degrees and to repeat it in the other direction. This is true in French also where the word against, I mean in French, uh, by French of course I meant German, um, where the word against and the word again are very similar um, words. Vider and is it Vider or Vider, um, Diana? Yeah, but they're both pronounced the same way. Um, so to do something against someone is like doing it again to them. Um, so the revenge is doing something against someone and doing what they've done again. What that means then is that revenge is a repetition of the very crime that it seeks to punish. It represents or represents the crime, presents it again but in the opposite direction. This goes back to the whole biblical idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for life, and death for death. It's doing again the very thing that's been done. For Shakespeare, that's really interesting because it has to do with the very idea of representation. That is, that if revenge is also reenactment, enacting again and enacting against, if revenge is reenactment, then the idea of having a play within a revenge play is a kind of enactment again of the very thing that it's seeking to punish. All of these ideas are in Shakespeare's mind. Um, what's really important to keep in mind, and this is essential to all revenge tragedy that's any good at all, um, but particularly essential to Hamlet, is an essay by Francis Bacon um, in his essays, um, written maybe under the influence of Shakespeare, but certainly written around the same time as Hamlet, probably a little bit later. But in his essay of revenge, 
Bacon defines revenge in a very famous sentence. He says, revenge is a kind of wild justice. Wild justice is the famous phrase there. Revenge is a kind of wild justice. And by wild, what he means is outside the law, outside the state, outside everything that has been set up in order to make justice work. Revenge is what Gaunt refuses in Richard II when he says correction lieth in those hands that made the fault that we may not correct. That's not being wild. But to be wild is to decide that if correction lies in the hands of the criminal, if that's the official charged with punishing the crime, when that official has committed the crime, only wild justice can exist. The only justice that exists is wild justice. Bacon is writing against revenge. And he says, and I think this is really important to Hamlet, what Bacon says is the first crime breaketh the law, but the second crime putteth the law out of office. The first crime breaks the law, but the second crime, not only does it break the law, but it, as it were, annihilates the law. That's why revenge for Bacon is worse than the crime it seeks to revenge. The reason Bacon thinks this, the reason Bacon is right to think this, is because the way criminal laws are written is that they tell you how things should be. You've probably all seen the t-shirt 186,000 miles per second. It's not just a good idea, it's the law. Um, that's a law of nature law. And what a law of nature is, is essentially a law that can't be broken. A law of nature, the very fact that it's there um, means that that's how nature works. A human law doesn't work that way. A human law will say something like, don't kill, or don't steal, or don't bear false witness, or remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's what human laws say. But the fact that they say that, I mean, those are God's laws, but they're not. But the fact that they say that doesn't mean that what they say is true. Human laws, unlike laws of nature, aren't automatically true once they are discovered, well, they're not discovered. They're written, they're invented. So human laws have to have a part two, which laws of nature don't. And the part two of a human law is something like this. Part one is something like, um, if you may not drive faster than 65 miles an hour on the mass pike once you get past Framingham. So that's a law. However, if you've ever done any driving past Framingham on the mass pike, you may notice that some people seem to be attempting to compete with the law of the speed of light rather than the law of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, so human laws have a part two. And the part two is if 
you break part one. Here are the penalties to which you are liable. You will have to pay a fine of $150. You'll get points on your license, et cetera, et cetera. So human laws have a part two, which is what happens when part one is broken. Part two comes into play. And for Bacon, therefore, someone who commits a crime is still someone who is within the law, not within the law as a law-abiding person, but someone who is within the law in the sense that the law, to quote Portia, has a hold on them still. They may have broken the law, but the part of the law that they broke doesn't actually break the law. It simply means they violated something, and the law can deal with that violation legally. It's very hard to break the law to such an extent that the law can't deal with it. The law is not fragile. Revenge tragedies are about situations where the law is completely broken. The reason the revenger breaks the law is because the first crime isn't being treated by the law as a crime. So the general, just one sec, the general situation in a revenge tragedy is that the revenger has to take the law into his or her own hands or has to take justice into his or her own hands because the structure of law which contemplates its own violation and provides penalties for that violation, that structure is not working. So the revenger has to step entirely outside of the law and become an outlaw figure in a way that so-called outlaws aren't. And so the revenger and the outlaw become really, really closely related figures. Yes? seems like um, another way to look at this is that there are two competing sets of laws, one based in family and nature and something greater than the laws of the state. Yeah. And this conflict is, conflict is really visible in the, sort of the difference between Laertes and Hamlet. Mm -hmm. um, Laertes, when he wants to take revenge, um, is sort of looking at a different situation because these are, you know, royal family. Um, and sort of Hamlet, who's trying to, you know, avenge his father who was the king, sort of has less of a conflict Okay, yeah, that's a good point, although it, it's, I think it's more complicated than that. So there are the issues of, again, the public-private issues that we saw in Richard II. Um, that is the, the um, question of whether you're taking vengeance for the death of your father or for the death of a king. Um, the king is magical, and killing the king is a terrible thing to do. On the other hand, um, can you really kill the king? to take revenge for the death of a king? That's a question. Um, killing someone who's killed your father is a very different thing. It's got natural law, you could say, on, on its side. Um, we're going to see later on when we get to King Lear um, characters saying that they are privileged by human feeling to say and do certain things under sufficient emotion, even though officially they shouldn't be allowed to do it. Um, the line that you will see Kent say in King Lear is, anger hath a privilege. Um, and the privilege is just, let me speak. 
um, even though it's breaking um, decorum for me to do so, anger hath a privilege to break decorum. Um, Hamlet is in a situation, unlike Laertes, Hamlet is in a situation where he is avenging both the murder of a king and the murder of his father. Um, and that's a situation where a little bit like Gaunt, deciding on the banishment of his own son, Hamlet has to be very careful not to let the personal and the political get confused with each other. And Hamlet is nothing if not careful about his own motives. That's something we're going to talk about. Laertes, and I'm glad you brought him up, um, one of the things that happens in Hamlet is that we have not one, but in a sense, three revenge tragedies being run simultaneously. Um, there's the tragedy of Hamlet, which is the obvious one, but there's also Laertes, whose father has been unjustly murdered, wildly murdered, or at least wildly killed. Um, this may not be the same thing as poisoning someone in his garden by pouring poison into their ears, but it's probably a little bit more than giving someone a general anesthetic to help them sleep. Um, and now we know that Michael Jackson's doctor has been arrested for involuntary manslaughter. Um, if he is guilty of involuntary manslaughter, Hamlet certainly is. Um, in fact, Hamlet's guilty of voluntary manslaughter. He just got the wrong guy. Um, and then there's Fortinbras, who is um, taking revenge for the arguably just but still politically disastrous death of his own father, Fortinbras Sr., um, so who's he taking revenge on? Well, he can't take revenge on Hamlet Sr., because Claudius has already done that for him. Um, but he's taking, trying to get back what Hamlet Sr. has won from his father. So what you have are three sons in this play with dead fathers. Um, and those three sons have roughly similar motivations in the actions that they take in the course of the play. Fortinbras frames the play. Um, we hear about him in Act 1. We see him briefly at the end of Act 4. And of course, at the end of the play, he returns. I don't want to give too much away. Um, but he does return at the end of the play. Um, it's he who discovers they're all living in the Matrix, and he brings them to... So I shouldn't be telling you this. Um, but he, but um, he's there as a figure. Hamlet says of Laertes in a fascinating line. He says that... Um, he sees in Laertes a mirror image of his own cause. That is, Hamlet recognizes that Laertes has very similar motives to his own. Um, and yet, in Laertes's story, Hamlet is the murderer. Um, and Hamlet recognizes the justice of the comparison, which is a pretty strong thing for Hamlet to recognize. It's also, and interestingly the case, this is something we're going to return to later, that Hamlet talks about his father throughout the first four acts, but in act five he doesn't. The one mention of the dead Hamlet, Hamlet Sr., Hamlet Pear, that we get in act five is Hamlet describes Claudius as he who killed my king and whored my mother. 
So just where we're expecting, he who killed my father and whored my mother, I mean, we would be expecting it if we had Shakespearean eloquence at our expectational command. Um, just where we're expecting, he who killed my father whored my mother, we get and said, no, my king. Hamlet Sr. has now become his king, not his father. Um, it's a telling absence in Act 5. It's something we'll talk about. Um, but after four acts of incessant harping upon his father, he only mentions him once in Act 5 and does so as though to say, I'm no longer concerned with him as a father. That's an important change in Act 5. But that does speak to just what you're saying, the question of the familial versus the political structures and dynamics and implications here. OK, I just want to look briefly at the beginning of Act 1 just to show you um, the sort of thing I mean about the difficulty of coming upon Hamlet for the first time. Um, if you look at the opening, so I'll, I'll just say some basic things. Shakespeare has what he's very fond of um, by this point of his career, but we've already seen it in Richard II at the opening of Hamlet, which is what looks like a dramatic setup for a story that he then doesn't tell. And the dramatic setup here is everything is really, really, really tense in Elsinore. Um, there's a lot of watch being kept. There's um, preparations for war, which make the night the joint laborer of the day. Um, it looks like terrible things are going to happen. There are loaded guns and loaded halbreds all over the place. Loaded cannons, too, it turns out. How do you load a halbred? Um, you get drunk, and then you get the halbred drunk. Uh, um, they're loaded cannons, at any rate. Um, <laughs> And it looks like there's going to be war with Norway, um, which is what we're going to find out. Um, and Denmark is in intense preparation for war. Um, and the guards on watch at the castle are very tense with each other. Who's there? Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. That is, the guards are challenging each other. Everything is on hair-trigger response. Um, then they recognize each other with the ironic long live the king. That is, it's an irony of the plays, long live the king. Well, he won't. Um, and, but longer than you might expect. Um, and then the changing of the guard, which they're very glad of because it's a cold and dark and terrifying night. All of this is atmospheric. All of this is setting a scene of extreme tension. Then Bernardo tells us, who is coming in. If you do meet Horatio and Marcellus, the rivals of my watch, bid them make haste. Francisco says, I think I hear them. Sand, who's there? Because they can't see each other because it's so dark. Friends to this ground, says Horatio. And liegemen to the Dane, um, says Marcellus. Um, Horatio is not Danish. Um, he's visiting Hamlet. Um, but he, therefore, says, friends to this ground. That is, um, I'm a friendly person. Marcel says, and we're loyal subjects. Um, Francisco can't wait to get away. Um, and then there's more figuring out who's who. Hold up, Bernardo, say, what is Horatio here? Horatio's line is, a piece of him. Um, 
and that means probably that they're shaking hands, and that's really all they can see. Welcome, Horatio. Welcome, good girl, Marcellus. And then Marcellus asks, and here we get um, a shift into yet more tension. What, has this thing appeared again tonight? Now, if it's your first night ever at Hamlet, you have no idea what they're talking about. What thing has appeared? Something scary or spooky or untoward, but we don't know what it is. Bernardo, I have seen nothing. Marcellus Horatio says, "'Tis but our fancy, our fantasy." and will not let belief take hold of him touching this dreaded sight twice seen of us. So those of you reading it for the first time, how many of you knew it was a ghost? Yeah, it's hard not to. Um, but no one knew the first day Hamlet was being shown, was being performed. Um, something scary. That's all people knew. Therefore, I have entreated him along with us to watch the minutes of this night, that if again this apparition come, he may approve our eyes and speak to it. So do we know that it's a ghost now? No, we don't actually. Apparition doesn't mean ghost until after Hamlet. That is what happened to our language, to our fair language, is people read and heard and saw Hamlet, and apparition was a little bit of a rare word. Um, you'd have to know a little Latin, as Shakespeare did, because he was a Latin teacher. Um, and what you would say is, oh, apparition, that means something that appeared. So really what this means is, what has this dreaded sight, what has this appearance appeared again? Um, but if you don't know that that's what apparition means, something which appears, you would read on a little bit, and you would find out that it was a ghost, and then you would say, oh, I've learned a new word. Apparition means ghost. Um, and then you would speak to your friends, and you would say, oh, you look like you've seen an apparition. Um, and you'd go watching cartoons like Casper, the Friendly Apparition. Um, and pretty soon, the word will mean and does mean ghost in English. So one reason that it's hard to read Hamlet or see it um, without already knowing things about it is it's actually changed the meaning of some of our vocabulary. Um, and that change means that we know things before we're supposed to know them. Uh, it's not a big deal. Okay, so, so um, you find out that it's a ghost a little bit before you're supposed to, but it's still worth noticing how hard it is to try and forget everything you think you know about Hamlet. So um, then we... then. Um, Horatio wants to hear about it. Bernardo starts telling the story. And then, there it is. Peace, peace, break off. Look where it comes again. In the same figure like the king that's dead. So we've gone from long live the king to the king that's dead. And now we realize that the dreaded sight, the apparition, the thing, is a ghost. Thou art a scholar. Speak to it, Horatio. Looks at not like the king. Mark it, Horatio. And then another important introductory point about Horatio. He's a skeptic from the start. He won't let belief take hold of him touching this thing. So when Horatio says that he accepts something as true, when he says, you're right, that actually matters. 
Marcellus and Bernardo and Francesca, whatever. Um, they are perhaps superstitious sorts, prone to thinking that bushes are bears, to quote Theseus. But if Horatio says, it harrows me with fear and wonder, if Horatio says, it does look just like the king, then you can see that this is someone who is shrewd and down to earth, whose skepticism is overcome. We will see this a little bit later. It's worth turning to. This is the kind of thing um, that you generally don't notice when you're reading Hamlet. But look at Hamlet challenging Horatio when Horatio tells him about the ghost. So this is in um, Act 1, Scene 2. Um, it's actually kind of a funny scene. Um, go to, this is on, in the Norton, page 1704, Act 1, Scene 2, around line uh, 165. Um, actually, a little earlier, Hamlet is, has just um, given his soliloquy about how much he hates life. Um, <coughs> then enter Horatio, Marcellus, and Bernardo. Horatio, hail to your lordship. Hamlet says, I'm glad to see you well. Horatio, or I do forget myself. Um, so what's happened there if you're acting it? Any? So Hamlet's general mode is a kind of routine courtesy. So Horatio says, hail to your lordship. And Hamlet doesn't recognize him at first. He's not expecting to see him. But here's a guy greeting him. So he says, you know, the way you do in the dining halls, oh, good to see you. I'm glad to see you well. And then suddenly the nickel drops. Horatio, or I do forget myself. Wow, it's you. What are you doing here? So that's the first surprise in the play for Hamlet. His friend is there. Um, that's a nice thing that his friend is there. Horatio, or I do forget myself. The same, my lord, and your poor servant ever. Sir, my good friend. Not servant, but friend. That's important. I'll change that name with you. That is, we're friends. And what make you from Wittenberg, Horatio? But then he remembers his courtesy. Marcellus kind of nods to him. My good Lord, I'm very glad to see you. Good even, sir, to Bernardo. And then to Horatio. But what in faith make you from Wittenberg? This is Hamlet likable. He hasn't been likable, as we'll see in his opening scene. But here he is. He's greeting people, and he's putting off what he wants, which is to talk to Horatio immediately. A true disposition, good my Lord. I would not have your enemy say so, says Hamlet, nor shall you do mine ear that violence to make a truster of your own report against yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, you're underlining, you shall not do my ear that violence because it's so clearly um, part of the pattern of imagery within the play, doing violence to ears. I see you all have already underlined it because you're not underlining it now, so I applaud you for having done that. Um, shows you're good readers, and I can make the quizzes yet harder still. Um, still no underlining. Good. Um, Nor shall you do mine ear that violence to make a truster of your own report against yourself. I know you are no truant, but what is your affair in Elsinore will teach you to drink deep ere you depart? My lord, I came to see your father's funeral, says Horatio. Hamlet's joke. I prithee do not mock me, fellow student. I think it was to see my mother's wedding. Um, and Horatio says that Hamlet is right about being troubled by what's happening here. 
Understatedly, he says it, indeed, my lord, it followed hard upon. The wedding it was kind of close to the funeral. Um, and Hamlet, in his kind of manic mood, because Hamlet is manic a lot in this play. It's one of the things we like so much about him. Makes this great joke. Thrift, thrift, Horatio. You know, they're really being careful in these times of economic crises. They're being really, really careful with um, not spending beyond what the endowment can possibly tolerate. Thrift, thrift, Horatio. The funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage tables. That is, we had, they had leftovers for the marriage, leftovers from the funeral. Um, that was good. There was some ham left. There was some roast beef, some tuna. It was great for the marriage. And then he speaks more seriously. Would I had met my dearest foe in heaven, ear I had ever seen that day, Horatio. Um, he's going to change his mind about the idea of seeing his dearest foe in heaven. Um, and at a very important moment in the play. Um, but notice the idea always on Hamlet's mind is not only what happens to you in life, but what happens to you after death. And so Hamlet is thinking and will think very strongly after he um, talks to, his, to the ghost. Um, he is thinking about not only revenge within this life, but revenge in the afterlife. That is, there are two laws. This is another way of following up on what you said. There are two laws um, that Hamlet has to think about. One is the law of Denmark, but the other is the law of God. For Gaunt, those are the same law. That is, the king is God's deputy anointed in his sight. Hamlet has no fear whatever that Claudius is God's deputy, anointed in his sight. Um, if he were gaunt, he would have such a fear. Um, but he doesn't have any fear about human law and about the violation of human law. He does, however, have to deal with divine law. And deal with it is what, in fact, he tries to do. Um, thinking about what to do about God's judgment of Claudius. That's something Hamlet actually thinks about in this play. What if God and I don't agree about what should happen to Claudius? That's a question he asks himself. And his answer is, then God will be wrong, and I will be right. And I will have to figure out a way to save God from making the wrong decision. Now that's a pretty, you're going to see this later on, but that's a pretty strong thing for Hamlet to do. But he's already thinking about it, or Shakespeare is already planting the seeds of this issue in our minds with this moment. And then it gets funny again. My father, methinks I see my father. Oh, where, my lord, says Horatio. Um, and Hamlet basically says, dude, I'm speaking figuratively. This is a Shakespeare play. Um, but there's a good reason for Horatio to say, oh, where, my lord? Um, the reason being that he's just seen Hamlet's father or thinks he's seen Hamlet's father. 
So it is a, it is a kind of wonderfully um, black comic scene at that moment. That is, Hamlet is being a little bit dramatic, and Horatio is saying, well, actually, um, there's a literal meaning to this. Um, but Hamlet just says, in my mind's eye, Horatio, um, which is where that phrase comes from. So again, that's not a cliche. He's not saying, you know about the mind's eye. You know that saying. Um, this is where the saying comes from. But still, what he's saying is, yeah, figuratively. I'm imagining him so vividly. Um, but then Horatio, um, by the way, hang on to the, oh, where, my lord, there. Um, it's, one, it's a moment in Shakespeare um, that is really interesting um, to me at any rate, um, which is the fact that in Shakespeare, people tend to wonder where the dead are. You'll see this several times in Shakespeare, and it's worth noticing now. We'll talk about it later in King Lear and in, in Cleopatra. Um, actually, we'll talk about it later in Hamlet when, um, I don't want to give this spoiler away, but later um, we hear that someone has died and someone says, where? Um, that question, where did someone die? Um, that being the first question someone thinks to ask is really interesting. Um, and it's something we'll talk about, as I say, in both King Lear and in Antony and Cleopatra. But we see it here as well. Oh, where, my lord? In my mind's eye, Horatio. Then Horatio, carefully, as he always is, says, I saw him once. He was a goodly king. Hamlet, again, picking up on this question of king versus person, um, sounds a little like Richard II. It was a man. Take him for all in all. I shall not look upon his like again. He gets that wrong. Um, he's going to look upon his like that very night. Um, then Horatio breaks the news. My lord, I think I saw him yesternight. Saw, says Hamlet. Who? Of course, he should say whom, but all right. Um, saw? Who? My lord, the king, your father. The king, my father. So there again, you have king and father. Horatio will call him the king rather than, yeah, I saw your dad. Um, and Hamlet now sees that something serious is going on, so he uses, the, he uses the more formal concatenation of the two, the king, my father. Horatio, let me tell you what happened. Um, for Hamlet, for God's love, let me hear. Um, and then he tells the story, which we know. Um, and Hamlet um, then starts questioning Horatio on this. Um, and actually, there's a, there's a moment that I just wanted to draw your attention to. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's just go down to line um, uh, 220. Hamlet says, "'Tis very strange what you've just told me. Horatio says, I do live my honored lord, tis true." And we did think it writ down in our duty to let you know of it. Um, so there's this idea of writing something down in your duty. Hamlet later will write in his tables. My tables, he says, me, that is his notebook. Meet it is, I set it down, that one may smile and smile and be a villain still. Um, indeed, sirs, 
But this troubles me, says Hamlet. Hold you the watch tonight, we do, my lord. Armed, you say. Armed, my lord. From top to toe? My lord from head to foot. And then Hamlet is skeptical. Then saw you not his face? Oh, yes, my lord, says Horatio. I did see his face. I could tell it was your father. Oh, yes, my lord. He wore his beaver up. Um, the beaver is the part of, the, um, of a knight's helmet that you can lift up to talk or down to fight. It's actually where saluting comes from. When you do this, when you're saluting, a military salute is actually a gesture of lifting up the beaver. Um, that's, where, that's where it's from. Oh, yes, my lord. He wore his beaver up. What? Look, what looked he? Frowningly? Horatio countenance more in sorrow than in anger. Pale or red? Nay, very pale. And fixed his eyes upon you? Most constantly. I wish I had been there. Um, it would have much amazed you. Very like, very like, Hamlet is still brooding. Say that long, while one with moderate haste might tell a hundred, says Horatio. And then Bernardo and Marcello say, longer, longer. And Horatio again establishes himself as the accurate observer, the dispassionately careful observer with his reply there, not when I saw it. So that's a nice little moment of interaction that Horatio gives an accurate account. We can tell that it's accurate. Marcellus and Bernardo, oh my God, this ghost, it was awful. But Horatio gives an accurate account. Now, in fact, if you have nothing better to do after 20 or 30 years of, of teaching Shakespeare, um, what you could do when you're watching Hamlet is count um, how long the ghost um, is there to Horatio and Marcellus and Bernardo um, and do it with moderate haste. And um, what you'll find is it comes to about 100. Um, so that's Horatio, again, is the person who really sees what's going on. This is important because we will always look to Horatio for some kind of reality check in the course of this play. Horatio is our reality check. Um, his judgment in both people and in incidents and events, his judgment is right. He's what film writers call a window character, um, and we'll be talking about window characters a lot from here on in. Um, or Merle is a window character to some extent in Richard II. Um, for Richard, Northumberland is a window character for Bolingbroke. What a window character is, is a character who the more important character interacts with, the more central character interacts with, and who the central character will often say what he or she is thinking to, Nerissa is a window character for Portia. Um, a win the central character will often say what he or she is thinking about or will at least be themselves around the window character. Shakespeare got really interested in such characters and really interested in making them more than technical aspects of playwriting. That is, he became interested in window characters as characters by themselves, on their own. Characters that we would be interested in um, as characters and not only as reflections of the more important characters they're with. Horatio is the first of Shakespeare's great window characters. Um, 
the later window characters are in a lot of ways going to be even more interesting than Horatio. We're not doing Othello in this play, but it's pretty fascinating that in Othello in this play, in this, we are doing Othello in this play, but not in this course. Um, it's pretty fascinating that the window character in Othello is Iago. That is, window and villain are merged in Othello. Um, the window character in Antony and Cleopatra as you will see, is Ina Barbas, and he's a really interesting version of this. But Horatio is the first of those great window characters, and he is therefore gives you the clearest view of what's going on in the play. I insist upon this because Hamlet will go to him for an important reality check later and it's worth seeing how Horatio responds. So, um, not when I saw it, he says. Hamlet then tries a little trick. His beard was grizzled, no? Horatio, it was, as I have seen it in his life, a sable silvered. Now notice how good what's gone on here is. This is all very, very minor, but Shakespeare is so at the top of his form that these really minor moments are worth thinking about. Hamlet tries a trick, which is to say to Horatio, oh, you really saw him, so he had a grizzled beard, huh? Because if Horatio is trying to convince Hamlet and it looks like Hamlet is going to believe him, if he says he has a grizzled beard, Horatio will say, yeah, I guess you could call it grizzled. Hamlet is going to do the same thing later with Polonius when he says, do you see that cloud there? Um, and Polonius says, why, yes. And Hamlet starts describing what it might look like. And Polonius is just agreeing with him no matter what it says. Or really like a whale. I very like a whale. Horatio doesn't do that. When Hamlet tries the same trick on Horatio, Horatio avoids, and this is important, not one, but two traps. And it's because Horatio will always tell the truth. The first trap is he doesn't say, well, if that'll convince you, yes, I'll say it was grizzled, because clearly that's what you would think. Um, but he also says, look, the fact that I know that his beard was a sable silvered doesn't prove that I saw him last night. We both know that I saw him when he was alive. So I'm not going to say, see, I knew that his beard was a sable silver, so now you know I'm telling the truth. What he's basically saying is, the fact that I can describe him doesn't mean that I saw him last night. I could describe him even if I hadn't seen him. The only reason for you to trust me is that I'm telling you the truth, not making exaggerated claims. And Hamlet gets this. And Horatio is the only character who will always be truthful to Hamlet. And Hamlet is, will, in the end, come to trust Horatio completely when he trusts no one else. Part of what the trajectory of this play is about is the friendship between Hamlet and Horatio. Um, the friends that they become. They don't start out the friends that they are at the end. We know this because Hamlet says, no, let's be friends. They've been friends at school, but now they're not at school anymore. And you've all had that experience of 
making friends at Brandeis with people, but then doing stuff with them on vacation. And that's when they're your real friends. It's not that they're, your, they're not just your campus friends when that happens. That's part of what this play is about. Um, not the main trajectory in the play, but it is part of what the play is about, is the friendship between Horatio and Hamlet. And maybe in a way the deepest thing the play is about, because Hamlet wants, like Richard, Hamlet wants friends. And there are lots of people who could be his friend, but aren't. Laertes is one such person, Fortinbras is another. But that's not going to happen. But what does happen is Horatio becomes his friend, and here's where it starts. So then Hamlet says, okay, I'll go watch tonight. I'll go see it. Um, and that's the beginning of that. Now, I said before that it's when Hamlet begins interacting with Horatio that we first see him in um, a better light from the light we first saw him in. So it's really worth noticing this, that Hamlet begins the play as a self-parody. Um, if you're reading Act 1, Scene 2, and you... Um, see Hamlet all dressed in black and sighing and, and all of that. Um, if you're directing Hamlet, you kind of have to tamp that down because it's just not going to go over with an audience um, to have him in this kind of dramatic, adolescent, um, brown student, black-wearing mode um, that he starts with. But he is supposed to be over-dramatizing at first. That's part of Shakespeare's point that when we first see Hamlet, we wonder about him. So if you go to Act 1, Scene 2, um, Claudius takes command of that scene. Um, we've seen the ghost. We know that war is coming, or we think we know that war is coming. We think we know um, that the ghost has a warning about the war that's, ab that's about to come. Um, and then Claudius comes in and he says, look, war is coming, and therefore I had to marry quickly. Um, it was a little bit hasty, but it nevertheless had to happen. Um, one reason is that young Fortinbras, this is at line 17 of Act 1, Scene 2, holding a weak supposal of our worth, or thinking by our late dear brother's death, our state to be disjoint and out of frame, co-leaguing with a dream of his advantage, he hath not failed to pester us with message importing the surrender of those lands lost by his father with all bonds of law. So again, Fortinbras is going against what Claudius regards as the law of nations with all bonds of law to our most valiant brother. So much for him. Um, so he says one reason we had to do this so quickly is that, the, is that we're in danger. Um, Notice, just as you go through this, um, how often words like joint or jointress appear in this play. Um, there's, I'm not pointing this out to you for thematic reasons, um, but I just want you to notice that there's a way in which Shakespeare has words and sounds echoing in his head, probably at a subliminal level, that he thinks of as contributing to the atmosphere that he's conveying. And so those words recur in the play. He's not thinking to himself, oh, yes, how cleverly I'm going to work in the word joint here. Um, and people will be really amazed 
when they see that I've done this. Um, he's not doing that at all. But what's happening is somehow the idea of things um, being cobbled together and maybe at a breaking point or maybe just barely hanging on, somehow that's there in his mind, as I say, I don't think consciously, but as part of his own, the atmosphere in his own mind for the language of this play. So the queen is the imperial jointress of this warlike state. But Fortinbras thinks our state to be disjoint and out of frame. Hamlet is going to telescope that together later when he says the time is out of joint. That is disjoint and out of frame will become out of joint. Um, so then the ambassadors, Valtamont and Cornelius, come in. Um, and um, Claudius says, so let's talk to old bed-ridden Norway. Um, who doesn't know, Cornelius and Voldemort go to Norway, um, tell him what's going on and see what happens, and they agree. So the first thing that Claudius does is he deals with the threat of war. The very first thing he does is he deals with the threat of war. Then he turns to Laertes. He's conspicuously leaving Hamlet for last. Um, Hamlet, in the meantime, is sighing and wearing black, and no one's paying attention to him. So he turns to Laertes and says, what would you like? And Laertes says, I want to go back to school. Um, and um, Hamlet, again, here you could see not, not excuse me, Claudius is a, being a little bit like Theseus at the beginning of A Midsummer Night's Dream. He's asking Laertes what he wants. Then he's going to ask Laertes' father, Polonius, what he wants. Polonius says, okay, I finally agreed. Um, and then Claudius says, take thy fair hour, Laertes, time be thine and thy best grace, suspend it at thy will. And then finally, Mr. Sire. But now, my cousin Hamlet and my son. And he's basically saying, you know, I left you for last because you're the most important person here, my cousin and my son. Hamlet's famous line is a little more than kin and less than kind. Um, so essentially he's saying, don't try to fob me off with cousin. I'm certainly a lot closer to you than some cousin. Um, and don't try to treat me as though I'm your son. I am in no way descended from you. Um, I am not, remember um, Shylock talking about the ewes and rams doing the deed of kind, um, which is to say, having sex, but also propagating their kind. Um, what he's saying is, I'm not your kind. I'm not your son. Um, that first denial is, again, something you should underline. Um, Hamlet is claiming, with some ferocity, that he's not Claudius's son. Um, and he's not, officially. But we don't know how long Claudius and Gertrude have been involved with each other. The play is studiously silent on that issue. In fact, the ghost tells Hamlet, don't ask how long they've been together. So there is hovering over this play throughout the possibility 
that Claudius is actually Hamlet's father. And this is a worry on Hamlet's part. It's certainly a worry that possibility does much to give possible explanations, not only for Hamlet's behavior, but for the ghost's behavior. So keep that in mind, that the first thing Hamlet says is, I'm more to you than a cousin, but there's no way that I'm your son. Um, and that the line, I don't know, I would say, to coin a phrase, he might protest too much, methinks. That's a good line. I've got to write that down. Um, there is a protest here that just by noticing it, again, you'll be somewhat attentive to it. Yeah. How? When he says, um, I can't remember exactly what it is or exactly where it is. <laughs> Very helpful. But, um, but he says, like, you know, even if he weren't my father, I would do this for him. Huh. Speaking of Polonius. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think he quite says that, but find it. Yeah. Um, it's certainly the case that the very idea of demanding justice, the theatrical idea, the idea that revenge is a representation, partly takes the form of saying, look, if you understood that he killed my father, you who are not his child, you whose father he isn't would want him dead too. That is the dramatic idea of presenting revenge to the world. And Hamlet really needs his story told. That's why he tells Horatio not to commit suicide at the end. He says, you have to stay in this world and draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. So the idea is other people will agree with the revenger's outrage. The only problem is no one under the control of this society and this king will, will see it. But if you saw it dispassionately, you would agree that I was right to take revenge. That's what makes it justice. What makes it wild is that no one in that society agrees. What makes it justice is the idea that outsiders hearing the story, seeing it represented on stage, would agree. And um, that idea is what makes people speak and explain their anger and the justice of their cause. So let's go on, though. <coughs> A little more than kin, but less than kind. Claudius, how is it that the clouds still, still hang on you? Not so, my lord. I am too much in the sun, he says. Very witty, but it's actually a little bit wittier than you, you might think. Um, what it means is, my father, the king, is dead, and yet I'm still being treated like the son and heir and not like the king who should be king now that he's dead. Now, the reason for this, it's not bizarre that Claudius became king. Um, just so you know, historically, Denmark um, and Norway had what were called elective kingships, which were basically when a king died, all the nobles decided who would be king next. Same is true with, with um, the Scotsman in the Scottish play. Um, and um, it was 
obvious possibilities um, were clear, like the son of the previous king, but also possibly the brother of the previous king, or possibly the person who the previous king thought um, had helped him most in battle. Um, but what Hamlet is basically saying is they should have voted on me rather than on you. Um, but you arranged it. I was off at school, and you arranged it so that they would vote on you first. And yeah, so they elected you king, and now look at me. Um, <coughs> Gertrude now chips in. Good Hamlet, cast thy knightly color off, and let thine eye look like a friend on Denmark. Do not forever with thy veiled lids seek for thy noble father in the dust. Thou knowest tis common. All that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. So all living things must die, she says. Um, and that's the common fate of everyone. Um, Hamlet is going to pick up on the word common there. But I, again, want to draw your attention to the difficulty, the difficult task that Shakespeare has set himself, which we'll see more and more in his career. He likes to take near impossible situations and turn them into plays. The difficult task that he set himself, as I've already mentioned, is a son taking revenge for the death of his father when the death of the previous generation doesn't have the automatic outrageousness that the death of a child would have. Mel Gibson played Hamlet not so well. Mel Gibson, in, in recent movies, plays people whose children have been kidnapped or killed. Um, he does that better. Not well, but better. Um, so that's essentially what Gertrude is saying. Why are you making a big Megillah out of this? He was old. He was your father. He's dead. What's the big deal? Shakespeare, in the next play we look at, is going to write a tragedy about someone who is in his mid-80s who begins the play saying, so I'm going to die within really a scene or two. Um, and if you're in the audience that first day watching King Lear, you're going to say, how can you possibly write a tragedy where tragedy means the death of the main character when the main character is in their mid-80s? Um, oh, no, he died. That's terrible. Well, it is terrible in the sense that it's always terrible when someone dies, but it's not the obvious go-to character to write a tragedy about. Um, but what Shakespeare wanted to do was take that near impossible situation and turn it into as tragic a situation as he could, which is to say, for many people, the greatest tragedy ever written. But the greatest tragedy ever written is a tragedy about a person who the very first thing he says is, I'm about to die. And then the tragic ending of the play is, you can close your ears if you don't want to hear the spoiler, he dies. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you time. Um, so, yeah, that Hamlet, he's all, in Hamlet, he's having Gertrude already say, how can you try and think you're in the middle of a tragedy because your old father died? How, how does that become a tragedy rather than the common fate of all human beings? Um, Hamlet's response is a kind of venomous, I, madam, it is common. That is, yeah, but he was royal not a commoner. You, you want him to be just like some common person? I met him. It is common. She pretends not to understand 
this adolescent sarcasm, very unappealing adolescent sarcasm, as though um, he should have a better fate than anyone else. If it be, she says, why seems it so particular with thee, if you think it's common? And she, again, in a little clash of words, she makes common back into common versus particular, not common versus royal. If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? So he gives up on common, picks up seems. Seems, madam? Nay, it is. I know not. Seems? Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother. So, you know, don't look at my outward show. It's just this old inky cloak. It's the first thing I found in my closet. Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath. No, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected havior of the visage, together with all forms, moods, shows of grief that can denote me truly. So he's saying, basically, look at all the paraphernalia of melancholy that I have. And yet this can't really show what's inside me. These indeed seem, for they are actions that a man might play. Um, so this is the first reference to acting in Hamlet. But I have that within which passeth show these but the trappings and the suits of woe. Um, so he really wants attention. Um, and he wants attention um, paid to the fact that he is so deep that he doesn't even care about whether he gets attention or not. Um, as long as people notice that he doesn't care whether they're noticing, he's happy. If they, if he, if they don't notice, it's, it's trouble. So Claudius then has, and I just want to say that what I want to do a lot in the course of, of our study of Hamlet is defend Claudius. And here's where I want to start. Well, I think I've already started. Claudius is handling, and in fact handles well, the possible war with Norway. Now he turns to Hamlet and he agrees with him. He says, "'Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these morning duties to your father. So unlike his mother, he's saying, you know, I understand this. But you must know your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his. And the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow. So death binds survivors to do sorrow. But to persevere in obstinate condolement is a course of impious stubbornness. Notice what Claudius is saying. If you weep too long, you're showing impiety. Why? Tis unmanly grief. It shows a will most incorrect to heaven, a heart unfortified, a mind impatient and understanding, simple and unschooled. All of this is showing a will incorrect to heaven because you're saying what God did in causing my father to die was wrong. And I am indicating my protest of what heaven itself did by complaining about it for months and months and months on end. It shows a will most incorrect to heaven. For what we know must be and is as common as any, the most vulgar thing to sense. Why should we in our peevish opposition take it to heart? Fight is a fault to heaven, a fault against the dead, a fault to nature, to reason, most absurd, whose common theme 
is death of fathers, and who still have cried from the first corpse till he that died today, this must be so. So the first corpse is who? Abel, Abel not Cain, very much not Cain. Um, Abel, um, killed by? Cain. Cain, very much Cain. Um, so Abel was killed by his brother Cain. Um, Claudius will remember this later when he says of what he's done, it hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. That is the first murder ever done was a brother murdering a brother. Um, clearly it's on Claudius's mind, not only in Act 3, but even here in Act 1. The first corpse till he that died today, this must be so. That is, death is inevitable. We pray you, throw to earth this unprevailing woe and think of us as of a father. Now, I want, I want to end today by drawing your attention to that line and how deep it is, what Claudius is trying to do. What he's saying is the common theme of nature is death of fathers. Fathers die he says, and then he says, throw to earth this unprevailing woe because fathers die and you can think of me as of a father. That is, think of me too as someone who will die and he confirms that by what he says next. For let the world take note, you are the most immediate to our throne. That is, fathers die and you are next. Think of me as a father and I will think of you as my heir. And have the world take note that I want you to become king of Denmark after me. So fathers die, he says. And that's a pretty powerful acknowledgement of Hamlet. What he knows, here's how I would defend Claudius at this moment. In fact, I'm going to say something um, strong and radical right now about this play, which is there is never a moment in the play where we know that Claudius has killed Hamlet's father. We think we know it, but we never know it for sure. And it's therefore worthwhile reading the play with the idea, kind of a Scott Turrow idea, a mystery novel idea, that Claudius might be innocent and that he might be the victim of slander and a false accusation. If you read it that way, if you ever play Claudius, if you play him that way, then you can get to depths of his character that Shakespeare wants you to see and that it's too easy to ignore if you turn him into a cartoon villain. So if you don't turn him into a cartoon villain, look what he's saying. He's saying you are a young, rebellious adolescent and I understand that and you hate me and I understand that too. And what I'm going to do is because I don't hate you, because I understand you and understand what you're going through, I'm going to give you something, which is the fact that you can look forward to my death. I don't protest 
against that. Not only do I not protest against it, I accept that you will do this. And the very fact that I accept this might show that I'm returning a kind of love for your hatred. And that's an impressive thing for Claudius to do. Okay, finish the play for Friday because there will be a quiz. I'm sure every question will be really easy, mainly.